chapter 19. Shannon left town on Tuesday for uh, a week, uh, some time away, and that's why you don't have the outline printed in your bulletin, but I'll have it for you on the slides behind me. At least I hope to, so that's the plan. Uh, we come to the conclusion of another section in the book of Revelation, uh, and that's the conclusion on this section called the Fall of Babylon. But today we'll look at the very end of chapter 19, and uh, two weeks from today we'll begin a new section, uh, the one that says the thousand years in chapter 20. That will be one of our, our most challenging passages yet to cover in the book of Revelation. Next Lord's Day, we're privileged to hear from Pastor Ray Rhodes, our good friend up in Dawsonville. So uh, Ray had a Sunday pop open and said, I'm available. And I said, well, please come. And we don't get to hear Ray very often these days, so I jumped at the opportunity. So Ray will be bringing us God's word next Lord's Day morning. So I know you'll want to come and hear Ray. Uh, let's uh, look at our passage this morning. Let's read our passage today. Uh, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11 and going all the way through verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, was on, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the inerrant, the authoritative, and the inspired word of God. May he bless uh, the reading of his word. Let's pray and ask for his help as we look into this passage today. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne through Christ our mediator. And through the blood of Jesus, we ask for your help today as we open up this uh, portion that describes your son's return. Lord, give us understanding. 
Give us clear minds to think and hear what your word has to say. Strengthen me, Lord, heart, mind, soul, throat, uh, to preach and proclaim your word clearly and effectively. And God, as a congregation, bless us and feed our souls with the truth of your word today. We commit our time to you. We ask this through Christ. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, God's word says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. A little later in Matthew, uh, Christ uh, says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. A little later in Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And finally, the Apostle Paul in Titus uh, chapter 2, waiting for the blessed hope, the, glor uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he returns, it'll be the most glorious thing that you and I have ever seen. It will be glory beyond belief when Christ returns, blazing glory, radiant splendor. Recall that when Jesus appeared to John in chapter 1 of this book, that John fell at his feet as though dead. Christ will come. And while we rejoice to see him, we will tremble in his presence. While the world, as chapter 6 informs us, hides in caves to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. It is this glorious appearing that you will be present for that's described in the verses I just read to you. What will it be like? What will his glorious return involve? There are three aspects of the king's glorious return in the passage before us. First, we'll see the glory of the king in verses 11 through 16. Jesus Christ will return in glorious majesty. We'll spend most of our time here. And then second, we'll find the certainty of his conquest in verses 17 and 18. Christ's conquest of his enemies is a certainty. And then third, we'll see the defeat of his enemies in verses 19 through 21. Christ triumphs over his enemies. So let's look at the first of these then, the first of these aspects that John presents to us. And the first aspect of the king's return is the glory uh, of the king. He, he appears in, in radiant majesty. And he describes this for us in verses 11 through 16. I want to break uh, John's description of the glory of Christ uh, down further into two parts. First, I want to examine the titles by which Christ is addressed in these verses. There are five titles 
that express the glorious majesty of Christ, our returning King. The first title is Faithful and True, and we see this in verse 11. Notice what it says in your Bible. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Faithful means characterized by steadfastness, uh, allegiance. Uh, it refers to someone who is sure and worthy of all trust. Christ is faithful. He's worthy of our full trust because he will fulfill everything that Scripture declared of him. And then true means something quite similar, characterized by the truth, dependable. He's the very embodiment of truth. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, because Christ is faithful and true, you and I can rest assured that all the promises of his word will be fulfilled. Dr. Joel Beakey draws this out for us, and he asks these questions. Listen and examine yourself. Hasn't your Savior always been faithful and true to you? Has he ever deceived you? When has he failed you or forgotten to be gracious to you? Hasn't he been to you the very truth of God incarnate? Has he not kept every promise he's ever made to you and fulfilled every word he's spoken? How sweet and rich is every name of God and of Christ. If we can look back and say, yes, he's fulfilled every promise, then we can look with confidence and certainty to the future and say he will remain faithful and true. If he has fulfilled already all he's promised to me, if he's never let me down, then what's ahead he will remain that way. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second title that we encounter is the title judge. The glorious king is the righteous judge of the nations. Verse 1 continues and says, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The word judges, the verb judges, means to preside as a judge in a legal case, to bring someone before a court for a judicial decision, to condemn or hand over for judicial punishment. This is not for believers, of course. I say, of course, because I'm, I'm hopeful that you will have Romans 8.1 in mind and will recall that we face no, no, no type of judicial sentence from uh, the one who sanctified and justified us. We've been declared not guilty in God's courtroom. There, there is therefore now no condemnation, no prison sentence, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ today, there remains uh, no sentence for you to serve because he's declared you not guilty. This sentence he will pass will be on the unbelieving world to pass sentence on those who have never put their trust in his atoning death, the payment he made for sin on the cross. Uh, John uh, described this role uh, 
Christ described this role, rather, in the book of John, chapter 5, where he describes how the Father has committed judgment to him. John 5 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is the second title that John uh, describes to us in our passage. He is faithful and true. Second, he is judged. The third title we see is unknown. Uh, the third title we encounter is, a, is an unknown name. Uh, notice verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That might sound contradictory at first, um, but this name that no one knows simply expresses that even though Jesus took on human form and even though he is in the, the image of the invisible God and, and though he is the perfect expression of God, we still do not know everything there is to know about Jesus Christ. He is still, he remains God unfathomable. One Bible scholar said this, here, here we're reminded that there are hidden depths. Christ's person can never be completely known by his creation. While we know a great deal about Christ through his, through his word, through his names and titles, he still possesses a name that remains hidden. And recall in the ancient world that to know someone's name was a way of possessing authority over them and power over them. And this indicates to us that Christ possesses a name no one knows. No part of his creation has power or control over him. Third, we encounter an unknown name, a title known only to himself. We will never know all there is to know about our infinite God. And the fourth title we encounter uh, the fourth name is the Word of God, one we're quite familiar with from John uh, chapter 1. Christ, the returning King, is the perfect expression of God. Uh, notice verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Christ is called the Word of God because in Christ, God the Father fully expresses and reveals himself. Uh, recall that in John chapter 14, Philip said to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Recall that in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the, the author leads with this very idea that, that Christ, as it were, is the exact duplicate of God the Father in human form. Listen to this long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. My kids were little. They played with Play-Doh all the time, as yours, many of yours did. 
and you know you stick something in the play-doh pull it out it leaves an impression that's what the greek term means christ is the exact impression of god the father uh, wayne grudem says he is an exact duplicate of the father the perfect expression of god christ the king perfectly expresses God, he perfectly executes the will of his heavenly Father. As, as he comes to judge, we know that this is certainly the Father's will uh, to come and judge the unbelieving world. There's one more title, and this is perhaps the one we know and cherish most of all, and that is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ is the greatest King. Christ is the greatest Lord. Uh, glance down to verse 16 where we see this. On his robe and on his thigh, he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This portrays Christ as the supreme ruler of the universe, the most exalted sovereign who possesses all authority and power. We, we saw him exalted to this position back in chapter 5. Recall that uh, he came and took the scroll from his father's right hand and then was seated on his father's throne and then worshipped and adored. Uh, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Uh, Christ, the most exalted sovereign, and reigns with all authority and power. O outside of God the Father, there is no one in the universe who possesses more power than Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of the universe. Amen. I used to play King of the Hill with my neighbor friends, Bob and Dave. They had a mound in their backyard. It was about, oh, it wasn't very high. It looks, seemed big to us back then. And, and so, um, you know, the point of King of the Hill is you try to get on top of the hill and stay there. You're the King of the Hill. The object of the other people is to shove you off any way possible. So uh, my neighbor friend Bob usually wound up being the king because Bob was a little bigger. Back then, the word they used was husky. <laughs> Bob was husky, and so I was tall and skinny. His little brother Dave was kind of a runt, so Bob was mostly the king of the hill a good percentage of the time. We would try to run up and shove him off. We'd try to team up and catch him off guard. And every once in a while, we managed to shove Bob off the top of the hill. There is no king of the hill with the king of kings and lord of lords. You remember the words of Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? Why are they in an uproar? He who sits in the heavens. <laughs> he laughs. He laughs. There is no other king. Your Savior is the supreme ruler of the entire universe. And there is nothing that can challenge him. That's why this is such a precious and cherished and glorious title. Perhaps better than all the others. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, it's not uncommon uh, these days for people to pad their resumes to describe their work to prospective employers in, in glowing terms, often quite exaggerated terms. And uh, one example is a young man applying for a full-time position described his summer job as purchasing, being responsible for the accuracy of daily cash transactions and maintaining the morale, alertness, and well-being of the entire office staff. Well, he was the guy they sent out for coffee. <laughs> Thankfully, there is no exaggeration in the titles of Jesus Christ. He is genuinely and absolutely faithful and true. He will return to judge the nations in righteousness. He is the incomprehensible God with an unknown name. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And truly, there's nothing in all creation greater than him, King of kings and Lord of lords. First, John describes the glory of the king through his titles. But this isn't all, because John goes on. He describes the glory of the king through his appearance. Many of these descriptions he has used in chapter 1. You'll see many of the same phrases reused here. It's the same Christ, the same glorious vision John saw in chapter 1 when he fell at his feet though dead. And John goes a little further in this uh, portion of the word, and he mentions eight characteristics, which I'll attempt to cover in a timely way. Uh, the first characteristic that we see is his mount. Uh, the king returns on a white horse, going back to verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is the, the mount of a conqueror. This is a mount of a victorious hero. When Roman generals uh, returned from a successful campaign, they would ride up the Via Sacra on a white horse. Citizens of, of Rome would line the way. They'd gather on rooftops to catch a glimpse of the victor as he returned to town with the spoils of war. And so when Christ the King returns, even though the battle has not yet been fought, he comes as a conquering king because he will conquer. And we see this through his mount. The second uh, characteristic John describes is his eyes. Uh, again, verse 12, his eyes are, are like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire refers to the penetrating, omniscient gaze of Christ, the all-knowing gaze who uh, searches and knows all things, even you, right now, with absolute perfection. And this is why he's able to judge men in righteousness, because he knows the hearts of all men. There, there, are, there are no secrets with Christ. He sees every nook and cranny of, of your heart, even those corners that you think are dark and tucked away, Christ sees it. 
This is what David confessed. This all-knowing gaze, Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. He's heard the rest of the sermon already. He knows you that well. And the writer of Hebrews describes it too. He says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees us perfectly. And as he returns, he will come with eyes like a flame of fire. Charles Spurgeon gives this comment. Why are his eyes like flames of fire? Why first to discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets that Christ does not see. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and know us to our inmost soul. So we see uh, the second characteristic that describes his appearance is his eyes. Verse 12 continues and, and gives us a description of his head. Verse 12 goes on to say, And on his head are many diadems. Perhaps that paints an awkward picture in your mind of crowns stacked every which way and leaning and, and falling over. But a diadem in the ancient world, uh, which was a crown of royalty, were often made of ribbons worn around the head. It, it makes little difference uh, what they were made of. They're symbols that demonstrate that Christ has widespread rule and authority, as we've already seen. He has the supremacy of many areas, the, the absolute sovereign. He rules the universe. We see... Uh, a third, his head uh, adorned with many diadems. John goes on to then describe, fourthly, his robe. Uh, we see this in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We know after the final battle, after Christ has engaged his enemy, we'll see that in the end of our passage today, that his robe will be spattered with blood. But that battle has not yet been joined. Uh, the word dipped in verse 13 actually refers to dipping something in dye. Uh, Christ's robe has been dyed with blood. And it's thought that this is the blood of Calvary, the blood of the cross. Jacob actually prophesied of Christ. Back in Genesis 49, Jacob looked forward and said, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. We think this is also the blood of Calvary, of his payment for our sin, because in the throne room, back in chapter 5, they gave glory to Christ, not because he'd shed his enemy's blood, but because he had shed his own blood. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, uh, they sang. Again, listen to Charles Spurgeon on this point. Oh, but this is the grandest thought about our master. Our master. 
that he is ever a red man wearing a bloody garment. As the atoning sacrifice, he is at his best. We love him as we see the white lily of his perfect nature, but the rose of Sharon is the flower for us, for its sweet perfume breathes life to our fainting souls. Yes, he bled. And this is the greatest thing we can say of him. Christ comes, returns with evidence of his payment for our sin on his robe. It is as though it has been dyed, spattered with the blood of his payment for our sins. The fifth characteristic involves you personally. The fifth characteristic we find John described to us is his armies that accompany him. Uh, look at verse 14 with me. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I hope you know how to ride a horse. Uh, I'm sure you'll be somehow miraculously equipped with a skill if you don't, such as me. Who exactly is included in the armies of heaven? Well, certainly the holy angels make up part of Christ's army. In our introduction, we read a, a verse from Matthew that described Christ returning with his, with his angels. And then we read the same in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, which says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The holy angels will certainly be in the armies of our returning king, but not only the angels make up the king's armies, the saints as well, I'm maintaining, and I mean you, will be part of this army. Uh, take note of how they're clothed. Look back at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And then glance up to our passage from last Sunday. Notice verse 8 in Revelation 19, describing the bride of Christ and how she prepared herself for the wedding feast. It says there, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Further, we think that we're in this retinue, or I think we're in this entourage of Christ. Not only are we clothed the very same way as these people are clothed, but further, Paul says in his description of Christ's return, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up Excuse me, let it get, up, get it up there for you. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When Christ returns, you and I will be gathered, raptured, snatched up to meet him as he returns. This word to meet that you see on the screen behind me alludes to the ancient practice of welcoming an important guest to the city, a conquering hero, an important government official, a, a, a ruler in his triumphal entry. They would go out to meet him using uh, the root of this word, and they would then return to the city, escort him back into the city. 
And this is how we will meet the Lord in the air. We will meet him in, in the air at his second coming and return with him to earth as he comes to conquer. Goodness. Can you imagine? A trumpet splitting the air. Hopefully in the middle of a midterm. <laughs> it's just almost beyond words, isn't it? And suddenly you're on the back of a horse. with other saints you know, the wind whipping through your hair, you holding on for dear life as you see the city of Chicago pass beneath you. The city of Chicago pass beneath you? Because we know the Lord has plenty to do in the city of Chicago. At least I know that. See the holy angels maybe out in front of us or maybe hedging us in on the sides so our steeds don't stray. After all, we don't really know how to ride horses at this point. Dr. Sproul says it like this, at the coming of Christ, Dr. R.C. Sproul that is, at the coming of Christ, the church will experience a rapture being taken up in the air to meet Christ as he comes. The rapture will not be secret, but open and obvious. Its purpose will not be to whisk the elect away from the earth for a while until Christ returns for a second, second coming. The purpose of the rapture is to allow the saints to meet Jesus in the air as he returns and be included in his entourage during his triumphal descent from heaven. His coming in this manner will be attended by the general resurrection the final judgment, and the end of the world. I believe the armies of heaven consist of angels as well as believers who have met the Lord in the air at the rapture. This is the fifth characteristic of his appearance, uh, his armies. We go on and we see uh, a seventh when uh, we see, uh, excuse me, this is the sixth characteristic. The, the king's appearance, uh, we see his mouth described. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Uh, there is no, no um, uh, it's not fuzzy what the intent of the sword from his mouth is. We're not confused about what this means. The word strike as in strike down the nations, means to afflict, to strike down, to slay. This is not the comforting story of the gospel that Christ is coming to present one more time. It is not the good news of repentance and faith coming from Christ's mouth. This sharp sword is a sword of destruction. And Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, who can create with an effective word from his mouth, because he is king of kings and lord of lords, can also destroy 
with an effective word from his mouth. And this is the very thing he will do at, at his return. He will strike down or slay the nations with a destructive word. Friend, when we reach this point, it will be too late for you. Oh, I always meant to. Oh, I, I, I was, I was going to get around to that. Friend, it, when we reach this point, it'll be too late. As Psalm 95 says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and give your life to Him. Because by this time, it will be late, too late. Uh, we go on, we see the seventh thing about his appearance is his staff. Verse 15 says, uh, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There is no mistake about what he will do with this rod of iron. It means his reign cannot be resisted. Uh, chapter 2 informs us what he's going to do with this rod. Again, you and I will be along for the ride on this one. Chapter 2 says, the one who conquers... Uh, and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This ties in with the, with the sword from his mouth, with the rod of iron. He will destroy his enemies and shatter them like pottery. Then finally, we see... Uh, of his appearance, we see his feet uh, described in our passage. Look at the conclusion of verse 15. It says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. John used this symbol of the winepress first back in chapter 14. Uh, there I pointed out that to produce wine, grapes were trampled in large stone troughs like this one. You see, it's a little dark, but you see the men trampling the grapes back here, and the juice from the grapes would flow through those uh, channels. Gravity took them to the lower basins, and from there the wine was stored in either goatskin bags or uh, large pottery vessels. I confess it is a rather gruesome symbol. Describing the way the king will dispose of all those who oppose him at his return. They'll be crushed like grapes in a wine press. And the language of this phrase is, is emphatic. He himself, it says, he himself will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. His feet will crush the grapes. He will be the one to dispense the wrath on the unbelieving world. His feet will be covered with their blood. His garments will be spattered. The eighth characteristic is a description of his feet. John describes the glory of the king through his appearance. And, and like, it, we, like it was in chapter 1, this appearance is rather terrifying. His mount 
his eyes, his head, his robe, his armies, his, his mouth, his staff, and his feet. He will come as a conqueror. And no one can oppose him. This, too, is the glory of our king on his return. John describes the glory of the king in his titles. The five titles we've seen, and then in his, his terrifying appearance of how he comes. This is what it will look like when Christ comes in glory. John goes on and gives us another aspect of the king's return. And the second aspect of his return is the certainty of his conquest when he comes. The king's victory, it's not up in the air. There's no doubt who's going to win. Uh, there, there, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever because of his glory, because of his, the greatness of his titles, and because of his glorious appearance, because of all that contains the conquest of his enemies is a foregone conclusion. It's a certainty. I want you to see three things related to the certainty of his conquest First, I want you to see the invitation. Uh, the first thing we see is an invitation uh, to yet another feast. We studied the first feast last Sunday, the marriage supper of the Lamb, up in verse 9. Uh, recall what it says there, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true words of God. This second feast is a completely different kind of feast look at verse 17 then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave both small and great to begin with this angel extends an invitation to the birds of heaven for, for a, a, a completely different feast, the great supper of God. And then note next about this conquest is the curse that is pronounced on, on these people. They are treated as covenant breakers because the curse was a curse from the covenant God made with Israel. Back in uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy, God described the curse that would fall on those who did not keep his covenant. It says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to the kings of the earth. And, and your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air. This was a... a a demonstration of sign of, of total defeat and humiliation to be given to the birds. It, it meant that the enemy was thoroughly and completely destroyed, so much so that there was no one left to bury the bodies. This is, this is how David taunted Goliath, that uh, massive covenant breaker of the Philistines. David uh, used these words, 
with Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air. As befalls covenant breakers, this will be your curse. The Philistines will be so completely obliterated there will be no one left to bury your bodies. And the birds will feast on them. Secondly, we see this curse, this rather grotesque uh, curse pronounced on the world of unbelievers. And then look finally and note the certainty, the utter certainty uh, the universal victory that will that will follow the the invitation is given to the birds before the battle even begins. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords' power is so absolute that the outcome of the battle is, the outcome of this battle is never in question. And then the certainty of this battle can be seen in the wide extent of the defeat. Notice the, every rank of, of soldier, captain, and social standing to eat the flesh of kings, the captains, mighty men, horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, free and slave, small and great. This will be universal devastation. Every rank and file among humanity will be destroyed. The second aspect of this returning king is the certainty of his victory. It's never in question. One more aspect of his return that John tells us about, and that, of course, must follow, and that's the defeat of his enemies. The defeat of his enemies is the third aspect of the king's return that John describes to us. And I just want to mention three things about uh, their defeat here. I want you to see, first of all, the opposition. Who exactly opposes Christ at this point? It says in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast, as we've described in our series, is uh, the persecuting force, uh, often represented by nations and governments, uh, forces that persecute Christ's church throughout history. This is how one scholar describes the beast. The seaborn beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout history. And at the end of history, the beast together with the nations will rise up against Christ and his church. This verse, verse 19, describes... Uh, the world of unbelievers gathered for one final assault on the church. Notice it again, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. This is a worldwide uprising against Christ in the church with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. This is not the first time it's, this has been described. John described this back in chapter 16. And John said there, he described the same uprising. I saw 
coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The same uprising in chapter 17 and John said, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. Together with the beast, these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then here again in chapter 19, we see yet one more description of this final day, the uprising that will be led by the beast and his armies. They gather to make war. They gather to wage the battle, it says. The decisive war. The final war. The war that will bring all history to a close. John's mentioned it several times. He's seen it in several visions. This is their Armageddon. This will be their Waterloo. This will be their little bighorn. This is the opposition arrayed against Christ. Second, I want you to see the victory that ensues. You must see the victory that follows uh, these armies arrayed against Christ. Uh, notice verse 20. And the beast was captured. And with the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake that burns with sulfur. The very next thing that we see is not what we'd expect. We would expect a description of the battle, wouldn't we? Oh, we were, we'd have X's here and X's here and arrows pointing to the middle. And we'd have a topographical map with a mountaintop here and a mountaintop here. And we'd hear about the seesaw action of, of the war that first went one way and then it went the other way. But finally, Christ's side triumphs. Nothing. Nothing. Unlike any documentary you've ever seen. There's no description of the battle. Why? Is there no description of this final battle that we can sink our teeth into? Scholars conclude there was no battle to speak of. Because it was over like that. It was not a drawn out struggle. One side wins for a while until the other side gets the upper hand, not like the movie, The Return of the King, at the end, you remember that? No seesaw of events between the two sides. Very simply, 
it transpired like this. Christ the King showed up and the battle was over. We get a glimpse of this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Notice what it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Isaiah 11 refers to the same. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The battle itself will be a non-battle. Christ, the only one to engage the enemy. The armies of heaven simply accompany him to share in his victory. And what a victory. Over in an instant. Triumphing over his enemies. And then lastly here, we see the victory. And the third thing we see is the doom. I'm not using this word to be melodramatic, but if there's ever a word to use for this, here it is doom. Doom for the enemies. The beast and the false prophet first. Again in verse 20, that very final phrase of verse 20 says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Again, these are not two people. These are two forces, anti-Christian persecution, the false prophet, anti-Christian religion. These two forces are thrown into the lake of fire, which is described by one scholar like this. This lake is a vast area of fire that burns ceaselessly with the nauseating smell of sulfur. The impossibility of ever leaving this burning pool is self-evident and everlasting pain and horror are the lot of those consigned to, the, to hell. We'll see Satan cast into the very same place in the next chapter. What this means simply is that anti-Christian persecution and anti-Christian religion will be cast into hell with Satan never to be seen again. Never to be seen again. And then the next, the doom of the unbelieving world. The doom of those who've never put their faith in the atoning death of Christ. Verse 21 says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The physical bodies of those who had never trusted Christ are killed at his command. With the sword that came from his mouth, their bodies become food for the animals. Their souls, as chapter 20 reveals, will also be thrown into the lake of fire. This, the third aspect of the king's return, is the defeat of his enemies. The opposition that rises up against him at that, that last day, his instantaneous victory on his return, and the certain doom of his defeated enemies. So, 
What will it be like? What will it be like? This glorious return of Jesus Christ that we read about and sing about and and hear about it. What will his return involve? There are three aspects we've seen in our passage this morning. First is the glory of the king at his return, his through his titles, through his appearance. There is the utter certainty of his, uh, excuse me, the utter certainty of his conquest. Uh, the invitation for the birds to consume before the battles even enjoined. And then lastly, the defeat of his enemies, the certain defeat. Now, how should we apply this? Friend, I think many of us read this with a, 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 a sliver of joy, but a sliver of horror, because we have unbelieving friends and relatives who will face Christ. And the thing that we do is to cry unto God that He would send His Spirit and His Word and that He would save them. We must pray for uh, those around us who do not yet know Christ. To be faithful to pray for them. To be faithful to use opportunities to share the good, the good news, the great news about what Christ will rescue them from. First, we're mindful of those who don't know the Lord around us. Secondly, oh, we, we long for His return. We don't look to any uh, government agency. We look for the glorious appearance of Christ. We set our hope on Him. We put our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things of this world. We, we focus our hope on Christ. And then a third application is we, we live and walk in holiness. Tied in with that great and glorious appearing, uh, Paul gives us this in Titus 2. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When he returns, we don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. We want to be ready to see him because we've been walking in righteousness and renouncing ungodliness. Friend, this is not... This is not some fairy tale. This will happen. Hopefully before the sun sets. And so the application is walk in godliness this afternoon. 
And if he doesn't come this afternoon, he might come tomorrow morning. Walk in godliness through the darkness of, of the night and the day and, until he comes. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We renounce it because our hope is on his return. And so, Jesus, help us to live in the light that one day you will come. We pray it would be in our lifetime. We pray that you would come soon. We pray for those around us who have yet to put their faith in your atoning death. Oh, Father, send your good spirit. Use us as a means of their salvation. Use our faithful witness in their lives as we proclaim the truth about Jesus, your son. Father, save those family members of ours who don't know you. Save our children who don't know you. Save our relatives, our distant relatives. Save our co-workers. Save our neighbors. Christ Jesus, work through us and cause us to be faithful to witness to those around us. And Jesus, quicken us by your Spirit to walk in holiness, to set our focus and our hope on you. Because you are coming. And by the power of your Spirit, help us to renounce ungodliness and walk in holiness before you. Christ, do this, please. We ask in your precious name. Amen.